0: and Future Tech Health Podcasts I'm with Stuart Williams. He's the founder of uh, BioOfficial Organs, and uh, his website is cvregen.com, R-E-G-E-N. Stuart, how are you?
1: I'm doing very well, Richard. How about you?
0: Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, the name BioOfficial Organs sounds like you know artificial organs that are created from um, biomaterial, so I hope I got that right, but um, let, can you let listeners know what's the premise of the work that you're doing?
1: So it's exactly that. It is organs, it's tissues that are created from biological parts. Um, Most people have heard of the term the total artificial heart or an artificial organ. Those uh, devices are made of plastic and metals and uh, biomaterials that are essentially not naturally occurring. So We came up with the term "bioficial" to replace artificial, to really give people the idea that what we're doing is we're building organs and tissues out of biologic materials.
0: Okay. Um, I would guess you'd have to focus on uh, a very narrow set of organs and tissues because they're all so complicated and so different. So what's your focus?
1: Yeah, so there are at least 11 different types of organs and tissues inside the body, Um, Some of them are extremely complex and do very complex things. Some are more simple. And when I give you my top down list of the more simple organs that we could probably create to the more complex organs, it might be somewhat um, at first questionable why I would say that. But I'll start by saying that one of the easier organs that we may have the ability to create out of biological parts is something like the heart. And the reason I state that is the heart is really made up of of only three distinct cell types. They're the, the muscle cells, cardiomyocytes, they're the blood vessel cells, and then there are the cells that make up the electrically conductive system. One of the more complex organs in the body would be something like the liver, that um, has many complex uh, components, many different cell types, and they have to be in the exact right orientation in order to, uh, order to work. And that, that's not to say that the heart is a very simple organ. It's just that it has one function to pump, and it really only utilizes a couple of specific cells to, to do that particular function.
0: So what, what do you think would be if you made a, um, a list of the hardest To the easiest, what are the organs there and why choose the heart in particular?
1: I think the more difficult organs, uh, again, the liver is going to be difficult. The kidney is going to be extremely difficult um, to, and and we'll use a couple of terms here, to to use regenerative medicine types of procedures or uh, something I've been involved with for a number of years now, 3D bioprinting. So, biological additive manufacturing in order to create all the different parts where all the pipes that go into it and all the pipes that come out of it, uh, tubes and structures are all in the proper order. The liver and the kidney is going to be one of the more difficult organs to, uh, to bioprint. I think in the the realm of some of the easiest organs to bioprint or to create using regenerative medicine, um, it's going to be parts of tissue that will probably be the easiest to uh, create. And one example of that is skin. Uh, Skin is a very complex tissue. It has a lot of different functions. But in order to make a patch of skin, that is is something that's probably going to be easier to do, not a snap of the fingers that we can do it, but it's going to be easier to do. My own particular major focus right now, outside of, of building what I call a bioficial heart, is to replace the insulin-producing tissue in the body. That's a group of tissues that are collectively, group of cells collectively known as the islets. They occur in your pancreas, And we have a very active program uh, in my laboratory and within the group to use 3D bioprinting to create what we'll call a bioficial pancreas to produce insulin on demand in a
0: patient. Could you, um, I thought of an idea, I mean, so you may not have to recreate an entire pancreas, but why couldn't you create just the islets of Langerhans cells and have them in a very simple, like, maybe skin-like or smooth muscle-like matrix so they get the blood supply and they live. And that could be used as, a, um, as like an ad hoc pancreatic function without creating a whole pancreas. Is that possible?
1: Yeah, that's uh, the exact direction that uh, we have been taking. If you look at the idea of trying to print the entire pancreas, it has both the endocrine portion, which is the islets, and the exocrine portion, which is the acinar tissue. So the idea of trying to print all of that together and these tubes coming in and out there, they're ducts that allow uh, exocrine uh, materials to be secreted and then go into the uh, the system, the endocrine system, the islets is separate. So the first step, I think, which is, uh, Richard, what you just stated, why not, create just a structure that produces the insulin and those are the beta cells and then build the structure that's important to keep the beta cells alive in the body and those are the blood vessels it's something that we call a prevascularized beta cell structure and that's one of our initial uh, focuses is to isolate the beta cells or create beta cells using things like, induce pluripotent stem cell technology and then create a structure that has blood vessels built around it and then implant that into patient it's a much simpler structure and it has really just one major function the ability to recognize glucose and then produce insulin based upon the recognition of that glucose
0: yeah that's i've talked to some scientists that are making what they call organoids so would this be a form of an organoid or does it have a more formal or different definition?
1: Yeah, and that's uh, exactly one of the, the major thoughts that we've had and we're progressing forward in preclinical studies and hope to be in clinical trials very rapidly is to create um, an organoid. We we use the term spheroid. Uh, we have intellectual property built around this where we can use a bioprinting system to make a spheroid of tissue that contains a patient's own blood vessel forming cells and a patient's own islets in a sphere of matrix that can then be implanted into that patient immediately. The blood vessels allow the islets to be perfused, and the islets carry out the, the endocrine function. They recognize glucose, and they produce the insulin that is then released into the surrounding tissue taken up by the blood vessels, and then uh, it passes through the, uh, the patient's body. So organoids and spheroids are somewhat interchangeable in, term, in uh, terminology. We use bioprinting technology to form spheroids that are perfect spheres, and we can also use bioprinting to answer that question, why do you need a bioprinter to do all of this? The bioprinter will make the exact same size of spheroid with the insulin in the blood vessel cells every single time. You don't have to touch it, so there's no hand manipulation, and it can make thousands of these over a very short period of time. So it takes the human part out of it. It's a totally automated system.
0: No, that's great. And I can see for organs like the kidneys, which I've heard are like the most complex of all. Um, you definitely would need to approximate, you know, one or two or maybe three functions of it with a a spheroid, you know, same thing with the liver. So I guess, and also too, if if an organ was damaged in a certain way, let's say, you know, I'm just, I don't know, but let's say the liver has four functions and it's damaged in such a way that only one or two of the functions are impaired. um, You'd only need to really bolster those two. So you wouldn't necessarily need an entirely new liver. And it would be easier to make one of these spheroid that has just one or two functions.
1: Yeah, exactly. And when you compare the kidney uh, and the liver, one of the things that the liver can uh, do very easily is regenerate. So when you have a damaged liver, and, and let's say with um, you have a liver that has been damaged genetically. So it's a patient who is born with a genetic abnormality. The idea of replacing that genetic defect with just an organoid or a spheroid with modified liver cells that have that gene modification repaired, that to me makes a, a whole lot of sense. The kidney doesn't regenerate, though, and that's one of several different uh, problems that exist with the, the kidney. So even if we repair one area of the kidney, it won't self uh, regenerate that complete area. The liver, on the other hand, you give it a it's sort of like planting your lawn. If you uh, repair one area and give it time, um, the, the grass will grow and cover the entire defect. That just doesn't happen in the kidney. It uh, It is an organ that was not meant to uh, regenerate like the liver. Um, same problem we have with uh, the heart. The heart does not have, that, uh, to our knowledge uh, to this date, It doesn't have cells inherent within it that will repopulate the heart if an an area of the heart is injured. But as you said, if we put spheroids or organoids into a damaged part of the heart, those may be able to take up residence and begin to create a, a functional part of the heart, and then hopefully in the future, with repeated injections, completely replace that part of the heart.
0: Yeah, I've also um in talking to various people, it seems like the number one most difficult thing is to vascularize, you know, artificial organs. I I don't know what the metric is, but I think they say like if a if a cell is more than one millimeter away from a blood source, it dies. So how how are you solving the vascularization problem?
1: So that's something that I've spent a, a major part of my career on is trying to develop ways of Taking cells from a patient, build new blood vessels, and put those blood vessel structures back into the patients. For the, the large blood vessels, uh, I was, I believe I was one of the first ones, if not the first ones, to use tissue engineering to create a blood vessel made out of a patient's own cells and utilize cells that exist in the fat of every uh, uh everyone in order to build a large blood vessel out of a patient's own fat. It had been uh, tried before by scraping cells from large blood vessels, but we took the concept of taking a small amount of fat out of someone, and we uh, successfully did this in a patient in the late 1980s. She needed a a new blood vessel, actually a new vein uh, leading back to her heart. We took a piece of her fat, we isolated the blood vessel forming cells from her fat, treated this uh, conduit, and then immediately implanted that into her body. And those cells formed a new blood vessel lining on that that large vessel conduit. And we uh, then subsequently, and this was, when I say uh, my work, there are a lot of people that I have to thank who I've worked with over the years, collaborators, an incredible number of really bright graduate students. uh, One in particular, Jay Hoying, who... uh, Jay uh, did his graduate work in my uh, laboratory and is now a very independent researcher. He was the first one to take blood vessel forming cells from fat and show that these cells could create a brand new vasculature in uh, an in vitro environment and would also create brand new blood vessels if injected back into poorly perfused tissue. And, and Jay did a lot of that work starting in the 1990s. And uh, many other graduate students and postdocs who worked in my laboratory, I believe, have really pushed this technology forward enough that uh, as a group, we can say that I think vascularization of tissue We've pot- we've got a pretty good handle on this as far as tissue engineering and regenerative medicine, growing new blood vessels around these implants that we put in.
0: Well, I would think uh, your job again may be a lot easier if uh, a spheroid is is enough, because then you could create a custom uh, scaffolding that would you know have a blood supply to, that grows into um, you know it would grow with the right geometry so that it would be able to feed all the cells around it. So I think you can engineer it from scratch that way, right?
1: That, that's exactly it. So the uh, some of the things that needed to be done in order to do that, one is um, identifying the source of enough vascular blood vessel forming cells in the body. And the early days, we were doing this by taking blood vessels that lined a large uh, a blood vessel in the body and then culturing the cells out. That takes a period of time. Identifying the cells in a, a piece of fat was one of the uh, the breakthroughs that those cells would form blood vessels. But then, as you mentioned, which is critical, it's the scaffold, it's the glue that holds tissue together. that the specific structure is the extracellular matrix, um, and the extracellular matrix in your body provides all sorts of critical signals that will support blood vessel formation, and not just simple small blood vessels like the capillaries, those are the smallest blood vessels in the body, but the matrix and the presence of the right cells and the right cytokines and growth factors, they will cause these blood vessel forming cells to form arterioles, to form venules, to form capillaries. And I would say that in the generic terms, what we're trying to form is a functional microcirculation, something that will Recognize when more blood uh, needs to flow to one area of the body, and where you need to constrict blood flow in other areas uh, when you don't need blood flow.
0: What about the geometry in which in which you grow a uh, a spheroid? Like, why is it a sphere? Why not? Uh, why can't it be a pancakeoid? You know, for lack of a better <laughs> word, just build it up layer by layer. You know, flat flat layer by flat layer.
1: Well, one of the reasons that uh, I've been working a lot on spheroids, I've made a lot of pancake uh, uh, structures in the past, and uh, those have been incredible tools uh, for in vitro studies where uh, things like 3D microphysiological systems, where you can grow these structures in the bottom of a, a, a Petri dish or a microfluidic system the reason that uh, my group and, and several other groups have moved more towards spheroids or organoids is the uh, the ability to give these structures to someone who will implant them in um, a patient. And as an example, some of the earliest artificial skins that were developed, they worked beautifully when they were Um, inside a uh, a tissue culture plastic dish. But when you tried to pull them up and have the idea to place it as a patch of artificial skin or some of our original studies trying to put this on the heart as it's beating, it didn't have enough structure to it that it would withstand pulling it up. So um, we went a couple of different directions. One, to build these structures around a scaffold and The first artificial skins uh, that uh, were developed, Dermagraft is a commercial product, as an example. That's built on a scaffold of material that surgeons can sew and they can, can pull on. But these patches are not necessarily the best thing for implantation inside a tissue. Let's say you want to treat a heart and you want to put these structures inside the tissue. So that's where a, a, a large number of investigators, including my group, said, why not use a, a more spheroid-like structure, an organoid-like uh, structure? So what we've yeah. done is continue to look at bioprinting as a way of making spheroids. And it, it turns out that it's not necessarily that simple to just print a sphere out on some sort of a surf, uh, surface and have it maintain that spheroid uh, uh, structure and that jumps me to part of our technology. If, if you've ever ridden around in your car after it has been uh, freshly polished, when the raindrops mm. come down, they basically hold that spheroid shape. If you've, you're driving around a car that hasn't had a, a good wax job recently, the spheroids that come down the raindrop will just lay out and create a pancake. So we actually took right some of the background knowledge of that, and that's incorporated into our techniques of getting spheroids to hold their shape um, without going into the uh, pancake-like structure. And this leads to some of the work that we're doing with moving bioprinting to the International Space Station. That may be a perfect place in order to 3D bioprint structures in complex structures like a spheroid where it won't fall into the pancake the pancake forms because of gravity so that's my little plug okay. for uh doing this on the international space station because everything yeah. doesn't form into a pan- t-
0: pancake it stays in a spheroid shape well what does the human body do when a, a fetus is forming you know have you studied that i'm sure you have but you know how does the human body do it how do organs so form the, do they form a sphere yeah so the,
1: the Yeah, so the really interesting thing about the the human body and all mammalian systems and many non-mammalian systems is many of those structures form somewhat in a microgravity condition. So the fetus is in amniotic fluid, and it's somewhat floating without the effect of gravity being seen. Um, so the the fetus can move around in this amniotic fluid the other some of the other unique aspects that we've learned um, after going back and really understanding how the fetus develops the The tissue in the fetus is somewhat ischemic, so it has a lower oxygen uh content, and there are a number of investigators. Uh, who have taught us that it's much better to grow these new tissues under ischemic conditions, low oxygen content, to basically simulate what is going on in fetal development. And the third one is this extracellular matrix, the glue that holds your tissue together. As as we develop, our extracellular matrix is very fetal-like, and it supports certain growth and certain blood vessel formation that once you become an adult, and best example of this is if you uh, cut yourself as a a, a very young uh, child, that wound will heal very, very rapidly. And it's essentially scarless most of the time. As we age and we cut ourselves, you get a a scar and the scar doesn't have the natural look because the blood vessels don't grow into it. That was one of several keys to us thinking, you know, there there must be something about the fetal environment that stimulates this scarless uh, uh,
0: tissue repair.
1: And it might be the perfect environment for the development
0: of these new organs. Why do you think that um, tissues in a a fetus grow in a a low-oxygen environment? Do you think that causes the cells to signal, hey, we need blood supply? So Know, grow closer to us or grow in our neighborhood
1: Yeah, you know that' that's a great question we should write a grant together on that um, we we yeah. don't know I mean often developmental biology what we do is we study the process and the environmental conditions and then we take these cues to go back and try to understand what the mechanism is why it was originally set up by the master planner of this we sometimes yeah. don't find out until much later but It just turns out many areas of the fetus, um, because the fetus is growing so rapidly and the ability to get oxygen pumped throughout uh, the blood system of the fetus, there's a a period of time where it is ischemic, it's low oxygen. So it may be the fetus basically evolved enough to grow under those low oxygen conditions, or there may be part of the master plan that that allows the blood vessels to form more rapidly may allow all these, you know, the complexity of the kidney. Why why does the kidney have its shape? Why does the glomerulus have that unique structure that allows for blood to be filtered into the urinary space? Um, We will, over time, learn all the different conditions and mechanisms that uh, uh, control it. I want to go back to the kidney thing and just also offer for anyone who, who listens to this, as we plan out bioprinting and recreation of these organs, um, you'll often see people initially print a kidney that's the shape of a kidney because people think that's the that's the way the kidney should look. We're already thinking as a field that maybe the kidney doesn't need to be the shape of the kidney. Maybe it can be much more uh, linear. Uh, maybe it's more a shape of a box. and We think the same thing with the heart and the same thing with the liver as we create these structures. Maybe there's a, a better shape to print in, and then we'll see what shape the, the final organ takes on once it's implanted inside the, uh, inside the body. So it, it's all these different structures. And the shape, that's going to be an interesting, an interesting one to work out as far as what shape do these organs that we print actually have to have.
0: Yeah, I wonder if there's a more optimized shape or uh, another shape that's more sparing of material. You would think the body would have found the best way, but I mean, I don't know. You're right. Why are the kidneys shaped the way they are, in the heart, and the liver? And it's odd. Yeah, it's very odd. There's nothing square-shaped yeah. that I know of, or like triangle, but uh, they're all kind of roundish, semi-spherical, or just you know, ellipso- ellipsoidal shapes, I guess.
1: Yeah, there they're there are more rounded shapes in nature, uh general curves in nature than there are perfectly straight uh objects. Um yeah. that's more inorganic, uh, as far as perfectly straight objects. And then you look at uh the, the liver. Why does it regenerate and why doesn't your heart regenerate? Um there mm. are multiple blood vessels that lead to muscles in the leg so if one blood vessel is uh, occluded often there are other blood vessels that can collateralize and provide blood flow but now you go to the heart and the heart has what uh, we call the widow maker one major blood vessel providing blood flow to the uh, the major uh, part of the heart the left ventricle and mm. why not build redundancy into one of the most critical organs uh, up there it it to me, it's always been interesting to think about uh, evolutionarily why um someone did not evolve that had multiple coronary vessels into their heart um uh, probably the the evolutionary force there is uh blocked because um coronary vessel disease did not does not take place uh often until you don't see it until fifty sixty seventy years of age. And when the lifespan uh, earlier was only 30, 35 years, it didn't allow for uh, evolution of that uh, uh, type of
0: structure. But
1: as we're living older, that may be an evolutionary force that takes over.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to my son about, you know, he's 11. I was talking about redundancy and we were talking about the body and I said, yeah, we got two kidneys, but only one heart, two eyes. You know, our nose is redundant because we have essentially two nostrils, but we only have one mouth, but you're right. it's weird that some parts of the body are have backups and some don't, and you wonder why you know it's very strange,
1: yeah, exactly. And then uh, some of those people who have three kidneys, uh, no one that oh, we do. know of at least on earth, has two hearts, uh, but yeah, for you sure. know and, you know, there, there are certain things the kidneys were placed to the back of your body, and that was protection uh, from attack, and that probably took place after uh, somebody in our ancestral past decided to stand on two legs. And that basically is a protection. We've got all of this structure around our lungs, the rib cage, in order to protect our our lungs and our heart. So uh, the evolutionary forces that uh, push that, but not the heart for
0: whatever reason. Well, this is getting into the realm of a question I always like to ask. So You know, in your research, what surprises you? What do you know that other people don't know because of the research and the work that you do? Like, what's just very unusual to you that that makes you think, hmm?
1: Well, you know, a lot of the work that I do is translational. Um, And I try to move this when it is appropriate into uh, clinical practice. So some of the things that I find that are are unusual, if you want to call it uh, unusual, is how medical practice has uh, evolved uh, with time, and how so many things that uh, were learned. So, a, a good example of a specific example of this is the work done in the 30s on trying to get the heart to regenerate blood vessels. Um, and yeah. I learned early in my career because I was forced to by my mentors to go back and uh, learn the much earlier literature. And I find work from the 30s where people were putting materials on the surface of the heart to try to stimulate new blood vessel development. And this was before bypass surgery, before stents and bypass grafts. People were trying different uh, materials. And um, uh, Charles Lindbergh is probably the, he is the father of tissue engineering and the work that he was trying to do to to grow heart tissue. Um, Those are, in, in my field, some of the most unusual things that when I go back and I read Charles Lindbergh's work and other investigators, even before the the thirties, where they saw things. And now all of a sudden with the modern biology that we have today and molecular biology and all this, it all of a sudden goes, wow that makes a whole lot of sense. And I wonder why somebody didn't repeat what they did back then. They had to rediscover Mm. it. And part of it is, Electronic literature. People tend not to go back any more than four years in the literature. If it was done before that, that uh, it, it's <laughs> not of it's not novel and it's not of any consequence. And I think uh, in, in the fields that I work in, I, I think that is a mistake. We should uh, go back and reread all of Charles Lindbergh's. Uh, he has a, a rather long uh, white paper called "The Culture of Organs: How to Grow Organs Outside the Body." That. Huh. Um, people should go back and reread that
0: well it 's good that you think like that i mean that 's everyone 's bias you know the new book it seems like to be better than an old book but uh yeah you 're right there 's a lot to be learned from the uh, the classics and the old stuff so yeah, that 's great that's right. it's Great to hear yep um all right so last question or two you know it 's fascinating what you 're doing what what 's your um you know next uh, a plan for the whole year coming what uh what do you what 's going to be coming out what new innovations or you know what do you hope to accomplish in the next year?
1: So probably one of the major things that I'm working on is a a translation of bioprinting to treat patients with uh, different forms of diabetes. So type 1 or juvenile diabetes, utilizing these uh, spheroids that contain a, a patient's own islet, and then also treating patients who have chronic pancreatitis. In chronic pancreatitis, the cure is to remove the pancreas and then we have developed uh, with a large number of colleagues working in this uh, field the capability of isolating their islets and then implanting the islets back in but we are trying to develop bioprinting techniques to make those islets function better and for a longer period of time so that's probably one of the major function uh, major things i'm working on another one is putting a bioprinter on the International Space Station that can be used with uh, lots of different tissues as a target and then make that available to investigators who want to study bioprinting under microgravity. That's some work that is going on with uh, a company in Indiana called TechShot. They're building the bioprinter that's going to go on the International Space Station. So I've been uh, uh, helping where I can with that particular project.
0: Well, that's great. All right, well, um, I guess we're a wrap. You know, thanks, Stuart, for coming. I really appreciate your time, and uh, the stuff you're working on is going to be uh, it's going to be tremendous. So keep at it. All
1: right, thank you, Richard. Enjoyed it.
0: You have been listening to Almost Here Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast post to review and discover more future technologies